welcome to Healing 101, the mini bite-sized episodes that are bursting full of information from leading experts and doctors who are here to help us understand difficult topics and teach us about the various ways we might be able to improve our mental health. The point of these episodes is to educate you about different mental health disorders and therapies that you may never have heard of before, because ultimately, the more people know, the more people we can help on their healing journeys. On today's Healing 101, I am joined by Dr. Brent Turnipseed, a board-certified psychiatrist and co-founder of Roots Behavioral Health. He and his wife, Andrea, founded Roots with the initial goal of making psychiatric care more accessible. Roots Behavioral Health Services include ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, a groundbreaking approach for the treatment of depression, anxiety, and for other serious conditions. As someone who has experienced psychedelic-assisted therapy, I was so interested to learn more about the benefits and his advice for anyone interested in trying this form of therapy. You're quite into your etymology, aren't you, of the word psychiatrist. Can you just talk us through what psychiatrist actually means? <laughs> yeah. So at the time when I decided, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to do psychiatry, I didn't know the origin. I hadn't looked it up. But a good friend of mine who's um, no longer alive, he, he was like a scholar, intellectual, and he said, you know, psychiatry means the healer of souls. And I thought, well, that sounds more like something like a priest or something religious. But still, that sounded like something that carried great depth and great responsibility. And so when I heard that, I I thought, what greater responsibility or role to try to learn and try to do in your work? I can't claim that I really heal people's souls, but I I like the idea and the meaning and the origin behind it. What really piqued your curiosity in psychedelics as an alternative to more conventional approaches to treating depression? So... I finished training in 2010 and I founded our business Roots Behavioral Health in 2016. So six years later in 2018, that's when we launched our ketamine program. So around 2016 or 17 or so, this is the point where I'm really getting into treating difficult to treat depression. I'm trying to think outside the box. I'm trying to find evidence-based ways, but innovative unusual ways to approach treating depression. Many, many people, despite you know all these advances we have in, me- in medications and psychotherapy, many people never significantly improve. In fact, it's about one third of all people that seek treatment for depression, close to one third, never fully recover. And we're talking millions of people alone just in the US each year aren't recovering from depression. So there was this great need for better treatments. And I start seeing an uptick in how many articles in our journals are talking about studies with ketamine. And at the time, I thought this this was really strange to me because, you know, I did my training from 2006 to 2010. And our training never covered anything related to ketamine, anything related to any psychedelic compounds. If ketamine was mentioned, it was only mentioned in the context of like substance use. Ketamine as being a problem, certainly not a treatment. So when I'm reading these articles about you know ketamine being this breakthrough treatment and being endorsed by the National Institutes of Mental Health, I'm thinking, wow, this is a real paradigm change in our field. Like suddenly we're talking about using something that we view as a substance of abuse potentially being this radical treatment that can treat you know refractory depression, depression that doesn't normally respond to other modes of treatment. The research and the evidence for ketamine was very promising, and it seemed 
uh, for people who are you know not functioning or disabled or contemplating suicide or attempting suicide, it's sort of like, hey, I think this seems like a good option for people. And the, the risk was relatively low for most people if administered correctly. And so at this point, when ketamine's becoming more accepted, so are psychedelics. At least psychedelic trials are happening again, whereas they weren't you know, 20 years ago. Um, and now there's several different psychedelic compounds you know, in FDA trials in the U.S. expecting or anticipating FDA approval probably in the next you know, three to five years, depending on which substance we're talking about. And most of them had, have had very positive trials showing, showing good benefit, uh, particularly MDMA and to a lesser extent, maybe psilocybin. And I, I think because of that, you know, our specialty in our field is going to look very different in 10 to 15 years. Will you tell us about what ketamine is and how it works? So ketamine has been around for a long time. It was FDA approved for general anesthesia in 1970. Um, it's used worldwide. It's generic. It's inexpensive. So essentially, it's an anesthetic. And it's still widely used in anesthesia. Uh, it's used for pain. But it's not an opiate. So it has a lot of safety advantages over you know opiate-type anesthetics. Around 2000, Yale University did this study um, where they gave a sub-anesthetic dose of uh, ketamine infused in eight patients with treatment-resistant depression. Within 24 hours, half of those people had a significant response, meaning their depression significantly improved in under 24 hours. But within about a week, the depression returned. So after this period of, you know, a lot of years of experiment, trials, research, by 2010, roughly, it's starting to become used off-label in clinical practice around the country. Usually it's given IV, intravenous infusions, but you can also inject ketamine intramuscularly into the deltoid muscle, like the shoulder muscle. So ketamine is administered twice a week for three weeks. And the studies were supporting this notion that if you cluster these six treatments in about a three-week time period, that this leads to a cumulative benefit of about a month or so. Well, three weeks to about a month of lack of symptoms for about 60 to 70% of people. And that percentage are people who had never previously responded to anything. So then the problem is, okay, ketamine works well, but it seems to wear off. And then people realize you can usually administer ketamine as a maintenance treatment. So one infusion per month is typical for most people. So even if a person responds to ketamine, and they say, finally, my depression is free. Okay, they might be able to do monthly treatments and maintain that benefit you know, indefinitely. Or I've seen some people do several monthly treatments, and after six to nine months, they say, wow, it seems to be gone. We don't know long-term like how long people are remaining depression-free if they kind of get to that point. But in my experience, unless they and their providers can figure out, okay, why, you know, why are you depressed in the first place? Is it because unresolved trauma? Is it psychological reasons? Is it because you're living in stress and poverty? I mean, there's numerous causes, but those causes have to be addressed because otherwise the person may still have to take ketamine or Prozac or whatever indefinitely to address those symptoms. So it never, you know, most of these treatments are not cures. And that's an important thing to emphasize. But I do like to give our patients and people hope that if you have a good clinician who's really good at investigating and trying to help you figure out what are the contributing factors, and if the person truly addresses those, I do believe in many instances, they can find a cure and they can be illness-free, but it takes some work. So can you talk us through 
what happens neurologically when you take ketamine and what changes it causes in the brain? Yes. So how it works is unique than any antidepressant medication. Most psychiatric medications work on what are called the monoamine neurotransmitters. So monoamine neurotransmitters in our body are little chemicals that you know, make things happen in our neurons, our brain cells. And the monoamine, monoamine neurotransmitters are serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine. So anything we prescribe modulates or influences those. Well, ketamine has little to no effect on the monoamine neurotransmitter system. Ketamine instead binds to a receptor in our brain called the NMDA receptor. So it stands for N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor. NMDA receptors are found throughout the brain. And when ketamine binds to the NMDA receptor, it modulates the flow of a completely different neurotransmitter, one called glutamate. Glutamate is um, one of the most common neurotransmitters. It's found throughout the brain. It's often thought to be involved in circuits related to learning and memory, but it has other functions. Well, it turns out that when ketamine binds to the receptor, modulates the glutamate, there's all these complex downstream effects that ultimately leads to the production of something called BDNF. BDNF stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So BDNF, it's not a hormone, but it's almost like a hormone. It's a chemical that leads to the production of our brains forming new synapses. So synapses is the space and connection from one nerve cell to another. When people are experiencing chronic stress, chronic depression, those synapses start to not work very well. In fact, the connections atrophy. So they kind of shrink and shrivel up. They're not working. And the effects of ketamine leads to synaptogenesis. So suddenly these old nerve cells or these stressed nerve cells whose synapses are broken or not connecting correctly or properly, suddenly they're forming new synapses, they're forming new connections, and the brain is working better than it has in a long time. That's one mechanism. The other mechanism is that ketamine turns out it's also an anti-inflammatory drug. So when we have depression, like I said, one common contributing factor is chronic inflammation. If we have chronic inflammation, which can be caused by dozens, if not hundreds of causes, our body, our immune system is producing these chemicals called cytokines. Cytokines are inflammatory molecules that find their way into the brain and they're causing disruption, they're causing damage, they're causing problems. They're probably ultimately leading to the symptoms we experience when we're depressed or having anxiety. Well, ketamine potently suppresses all of those cytokines. And then the last kind of thinking about ketamine mechanism, how it works and how it may help treat depression, it can help improve something called maladaptive memories. So behaviors and memories and the way we think and the way we do things often are a result of our brain having like a circuit. A circuit, you can think of a circuit almost like as train tracks. The train tracks are fixed and they just go a certain way or a certain direction, you know, to infinity. Well, over time, if we have unhealthy behaviors or unhealthy patterns or we grew up in a traumatic household, these circuits may have been disrupted and these train tracks are going in ways that aren't benefiting us, if that makes sense. So ketamine disrupts that circuit, disrupts these train tracks, and it's almost like it wipes them clean and it allows you to form new circuits and start behaving and acting and thinking in a new way. When I say thinking a new way, here's a great um, concrete example. People that suffer from mental illness, whether it's depression or PTSD, what have you, they often have like a negative script or negative thinking in their mind. For example, 
people don't love me. I'm no good. I'm worthless, right? And they can't stop that thinking. So things like, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy can get people to reframe and change that way of thinking sometimes. But ketamine and psychedelics seem to give people the ability to radically change the direction of those thoughts and get them to like become like a new healthier pattern. I believe that's much more likely, these maladaptive memories are much more likely to improve if ketamine or psychedelics are administered with psychotherapy at the same time. That right there is a very powerful tool. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. How long does treatment typically last for you with a client and how do you administer the ketamine? Typically, I know you've spoken about injecting it, but what do you tend to do with patients with depression in your clinic? There's a few different things ketamine is effective for, but depression would be the most common. It has the best evidence for treating depression. So if we're talking about depression, people typically do six treatments in about a period of three weeks, and then they transition to typically monthly maintenance, so once a month treatment. But again, what we really want to do is take a good amount of time and talk with the patient about what's going on in your life, your personal life, your habits, your diets, your exercise or lack of exercise, and trying to list and enumerate what are these contributing factors that got you to this place or to this you know, point in the first place. At the point that they've gotten better and they're feeling better, then we really need to you know, nudge them and help motivate them to start to make those changes so that ultimately they may not have to take ketamine or any medication at all. That's my ultimate hope for all people listening to this. If you get better, I want you and your provider to really work towards doing the detective work to figure out what are these contributing factors that may have led to the problem or the illness in the first place. And if you and the provider can do a good job of that and begin taking one item at a time and working on improving it, that the more people can do this, the better chance they have of being medication free. So I always like to give people the hope that I would love for them to be medication free. Ultimately, I do think our medicines are useful, even antidepressants. I think antidepressants, you know, in this era of everyone getting excited about psychedelics, people have kind of demonized antidepressants. They're not the worst thing. They help many people like they arguably or undoubtedly have saved lives. But the problem is too many people with mild symptoms are prescribed antidepressants and just left on them, typically by primary care providers who are overworked and busy. And even in psychiatry, we think, okay, our patient's better. Well, you better stay on that medication because we don't want you to feel bad again, right? But I'd rather say, let's think really hard and work really hard to change your lifestyle and become ultimately to optimize your brain health. I'd like to motivate people to eventually get off the medications. And there's good evidence that says, at least in terms of depression, if a person recovers from depression, probably nine to 12 months later is the ideal time to try to taper and stop medications, provided they've had some good psychotherapy, provided they have done a good amount of work to address these contributing factors. People can get off the medications, but it takes motivation, it takes a good plan, and it takes you know having a good healthcare provider there to support you in case you know you fall backwards a bit and need to go back on a medication. But ultimately, that's my hope for most people is to be 
medication free or is to take as little medication as possible. So typically, would you you would prescribe ketamine just to clarify for up to what twelve months for a patient if it was doing good, and then you would want to taper them off it. I'd probably if it, if they responded to ketamine and improved, I'd probably recommend they take it for at least six to nine months, continue maintenance for six to nine months. And yes, I would like to nudge them to consider stopping their ketamine treatments maybe nine to 12 months later. But for many people, that's frightening and they don't want to do that because they realize they're feeling better. That's the tricky part. People get very uncomfortable with the idea of stopping things and I don't blame them. I mean, they should be cautious but I also want them to, again, like work and try to make some changes so that they can at least make attempts to get off the medication. So that's, that's yes, that's my like general plan. But what ends up happening is most people still continue with their medications longer than I would like them to. It all falls along a spectrum. How many things they can do to address those contributing factors, the more they can do, the better chance they can to reduce the treatments or reduce the amount of medications they take. And for your patients... Do you give them the ketamine in pill form or do you get them to inject it into themselves or do they come into the clinic to do it? So this is somewhat controversial issue. Um, At our clinic, we believe in only administering ketamine in the clinic. So we administer it IV or we give an intramuscular injection. Um, There are some providers in the United States that will prescribe compounded oral lozenges that you can take at home or compounded ketamine nasal spray. There are arguably some people that can make that work and it is cost effective. The caveat is the dosage of the at-home ketamine can't be as high as it can be in the office. So for some people, it's not adequate. They get some relief, but not full relief. The other risk is that Ketamine for many people can be psychologically addictive. They can develop like a psychological dependence on the ketamine and they may not take it as prescribed always. They might take intranasal ketamine many more squirts than was prescribed because they wanted to see what happens or they want to trip or something like that. So I feel like ketamine probably is most responsibly and most safely administered in the office. There's some adverse events that can occur with ketamine, even in the home setting, I would rather people do it safely, do it with like their healthcare provider, where we can watch them, we can check their vital signs. Some people get anxiety, some people throw up, some people panic. And I'd rather them have good support and safety, just in case anything were to go wrong, versus taking it home by yourself, When you take ketamine, you dissociate, you feel like you're outside your body. For some people, that's pleasant. For other people, it can be terrifying. You become confused. Your coordination is very affected for about 45 minutes to an hour. So a person could argue that it could be taken at home safely. But I think there's so many guardrails you'd have to put up for that to guarantee safety. It's probably not practical in most cases. But you can account for all those safety parameters in the office. And you're not worried about patients becoming subsequently addicted to ketamine, say someone's never taken it before, coming to seek treatment with you. You haven't yet seen evidence of people then becoming absolutely hooked on it post their treatment program. The simple answer is no, not really. I mean, the definition of addiction in our our diagnostic manual includes language that is a person is going to be constantly seeking that substance and doing things to put themselves at risk or danger to get that substance, like 
cocaine or alcohol, they're going to be taking risks to get it, doing it in a strange or unusual or risky situations. But coming in to the provider's office once a month for an infusion doesn't really sound like typical addictive behaviors. And I've never seen anything that strikes me as rather suspicious. However, before we launched our ketamine program in the office, when we first started ketamine in 2018, there's a lot of things you have to do in the clinic, equipment you have to have, protocols you have to write to get set up for these treatments in the office. And prior to that, there was some good evidence of the ability to prescribe low-dose oral ketamine for home use. So I actually prescribed at-home ketamine for a select number of my patients who I knew well and felt like I had good trust and rapport with. And it was it was mostly effective. It was inexpensive. Compounded ketamine per month is maybe like 60, 70 US dollars. But after about five or six months of this, I noticed a, a gradual trend that was starting to worry me. And that was these patients did seem to trust me and vice versa. And because we had such a trusting relationship, more and more of them were opening up and telling me that I feel like taking my ketamine more often than you prescribed it. I would typically prescribe it for twice a week administration. The studies were showing efficacy, so benefit at just taking oral ketamine twice a week, like every three to four days. But I'd have patients say, well, I feel like taking it four days a week now or five days a week. Or instead of taking two lozenges, there's this desire, I feel like taking three or four lozenges. So it was almost like this curiosity, this desire to mentally escape is what a lot of them described. And so I thought, well, giving a person this uh, prescription of you know a bunch of ketamine tablets for home use, it's not that I don't trust people inherently, but I think if we're given something that has all this risk, it made me uncomfortable. So once we started our in-office program of intramuscular and IV treatments of ketamine, we ended the at-home ketamine treatments. We'd only done it for maybe 30 patients. Quite a few of them actually got better and were able to go off the ketamine and maintain their remission. But there was a handful, a select few, that we grandfathered in and said, as long as you're taking it as prescribed, and we were monitoring them closely, we didn't feel like we could ethically make them stop taking the ketamine. They had recovered. They were doing well. I felt like that was fine, but we didn't expand the at-home program because had we done that, our clinic is a bit large. We treat between eight and 9,000 patients. I mean, I could imagine we could have had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds over a year of time because there's a big demand for ketamine because there's an epidemic of depression. And so I just didn't love the idea of me and my providers being responsible and monitoring an increasing number of at-home ketamine prescriptions. But there are companies that are doing that now, and there's a lot of scrutiny about it. And what is the demand? I mean, you just alluded to it there, but have you got a waiting list of people who are queuing up to do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy with your clinic? Yes, we have two clinics, and I think between both clinics, eight or nine treatment rooms for ketamine. So we're limited on how much space in which we can administer the ketamine and how many appointments per day each room can handle. And so currently, we are, I think, on about a three or four month wait for new patients to begin a ketamine regimen, which I don't love. I wish, you know, we could accommodate more, but that's all the space we have at this point. But yes, there is a huge demand for depression treatment. And like we're talking or alluding to the fact that many of the treatments are so limited in how effective they are. And so people get to the point where they're willing to try anything And ketamine offers them hope. It doesn't work for everybody, but it works for a majority of people who take it. And so if I had depression and I was struggling with 
the ability to function or thinking about suicide, of course I would consider ketamine. In fact, each time I ever hear about a suicide, particularly a, a celebrity suicide, because you hear, you know, it talked about so much, like when Anthony Bourdain died, the first thought that crossed my mind was, did Tony Bourdain ever get ketamine? And I think like a week before, a week after Kate Spade had committed suicide. And I thought, you know, these people who are celebrities who had access to whatever they want, I, I wondered, did they ever get ketamine? Not that it would have, you know, cured them or fixed them. But again, if people are at that point, I feel like they should at least have the opportunity or the chance to see if it works for them. And for my own sake, I'm quite curious if I showed up on your doorstep with OCD and a history of an eating disorder, would you take me on as a client? Or at the moment, are you purely taking on people who have depression? No, 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 we would certainly take you on as a client, Pandora. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I'm all, I'm on the plane tomorrow. <laughs> no. no. Okay. So in all seriousness, yes. I mean, there are some smaller studies showing that ketamine seems to benefit people with OCD. There's just not as much evidence compared to depression, but in our clinic, yes. I mean, I can think of plenty of patients whose OCD said, wow, it responded and you know nothing had helped this much until I took the ketamine. So there are some people with OCD that said the ketamine's effective. The same is true for eating disorders, whether we're talking about binge eating, bulimia, or anorexia. Those you know, eating disorders are often very difficult to treat. There's many other contributing factors like we're talking about. It's not like there's one thing that's going to fix that. And I think, again, whether it's OCD or eating disorders, you could just get the ketamine. But I think with psychotherapy, with psychotherapy support, helping you make sense of your ketamine experience the thoughts and the images and the ideas that come up in your mind during the experience, because that's what happens on ketamine, processing that with a therapist leads to a deeper and greater and more sustained benefit. It's funny, I, I actually enjoy treating OCD because it's another difficult to treat condition. And I've seen many OCD patients who tell me nothing seems to have helped. Now, again, I'm not saying antidepressants are for everybody, but a great example of this is that there's an older antidepressant called clomipramine. I've been on it. Yeah. And it's in a class of medicines called tricyclic antidepressants. And many patients, I'd say most patients that come in and see us for OCD have never tried it. Their previous doctors have never recommended it. And it turns out it's quite effective for people. I've seen it work miracles in our patients with OCD. The downside is yes, it's an antidepressant. It can have side effects. And some people it can cause weight gain. But there's also lifestyle things people can do to address OCD as well. Some people think it's mediated by microbiome. So if you optimize your gut health, that might help OCD. Um, there's evidence that boosting antioxidants like N-acetylcysteine can improve OCD. I mean, I can, I can just go on and on. But to answer your question, yes, ketamine stands the chance that it could help improve OCD symptoms and or eating, disor eating disorder symptoms as well, particularly if given with psychotherapy. I know that there are in the UK, there are definite trials going on. There's a clinic just outside Oxford and they're doing quite extensive work at the moment. So it's moving a pace. It just needs to be, as we said earlier, it needs to be accelerated. And I hope that the UK will move onto the bandwagon as fast as the US has. I hope so too. There's a few colleagues we have there at Oxford. Um, the, the ketamine community is pretty small when it comes to treatment providers and academics and so I know there are some good people doing good work in the UK. I'm hoping that people living in the UK end up getting some of the same benefits with ketamine or psychedelics like, like we're hoping to get in the United States. Gosh, Brent, I could talk to you for absolutely hours <laughs> and I'm fascinated and I really hope this conversation continues beyond this podcast episode. 
Thank you, Pandora. I, I'm honored to be here. And yes, I, I could keep talking as well. I love talking about this. I love sharing these ideas and giving people hope. And I'm happy to come back and continue the conversation anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing 101. Just a reminder that if you're struggling or in need of someone to talk to, please remember to text SHOUT to 85258. Thank you.